Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Meanwhile, closer to home here, two Victoria municipal councillors now have admitted to traveling outside Canada over the Christmas break. He got a Victoria city councillor who went to his native Somalia and now a councillor from nearby Machosan admits that she went to beautiful Cabo San Lucas in Mexico. Yeah, now she's kind of sticking by her guns here saying, look, didn't break any rules, didn't break any laws. I'm allowed to travel. She's self-isolating when she got home. But I don't know. I mean, we may see more of these stand by. There could be more of them. We, there's a long list of politicians all across Canada have been caught taking these COVID-19 vacations, including the now former finance minister in Ontario, Rod Phillips, on his trip to St. Bart's. And here he is admitting that he uh, made some mistakes here. It was a, you know, a significant uh, error in judgment, uh, a dumb, dumb mistake. Okay, a dumb, dumb mistake. He has now uh, been replaced as the finance minister in Ontario. Could we see more examples of politicians traveling uh, during Christmas over the during the COVID-19 pandemic? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mayor West, uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I wish I could say that I was surprised, but uh, I'm not at all surprised uh, because I think that there is a a sense of elitism and entitlement that permeates throughout uh, the political class and political establishment in in the country, and that reveals itself in, in so many ways. This is revealing itself in a way that is very clear to the public uh, and has really hit a nerve with the public. And, you know, it's just such a juxtaposition to this, you know, phrase that we've been hearing from politicians at every single level of government from the very beginning of the pandemic. We're all in this together. How many times have we heard that, Mike? I've lost count. So when you have examples of things like this happen, what it says to, to the public is, no, we're not all in this together because there's been very, very clear direction given to all of us that we need to stay at home, that we need to stay within our bubble, that we need to, uh, you know, we need to not go and visit family members. And and people across the entire province and every community have have been making tremendous sacrifices. You know, Uh, my uh, father-in-law is going through cancer treatment right now through chemotherapy and radiation. We aren't able to see him. My wife isn't able to go see her dad. Uh, and, and it's been horrible, uh, but that's a sacrifice that we've been asked to, to make. And you could go to any family, and they're going to be able to tell you a story of a sacrifice that they, they've made. So then to have a group of politicians turn around and, and have this idea that, well, no, 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 those rules are for other people, not for me, uh, and, and I can jet off right. to a vacation. Uh, it, it's just it really has hit a nerve. It reveals, in my opinion, something deeper 
Uh, and a real problem that we have in terms of this cor- corrosion of trust. Uh, and, and it's actions like this that erode trust uh, between elected officials and our people. And, and so I, I hope that this isn't that sort of story for a week and then people forget about it because there is something deeper here and it is to me a sense of entitlement elitism and quite frankly just a bunch of out-of-touch people who i don't think should be in elected positions okay each one of these politicians that have been caught taking these covid vacations all of them have got an explanation and if you listen to them for for example the victoria city councilor here Sharmark dubo who is Got an inspiring personal story. This is a guy who came to Canada as a refugee fleeing uh, war-torn East Africa. And he says that he had been saving for a long time to go back to his native Somalia and visit family members there. This is a guy who got a lot of attention as a refugee who became a city councillor in our country. Do you cut him any kind of slack for you know a personal situation like that where he says he'd been planning the trip for years? Well, I, I, I empathize, but... Everybody has a story. And yeah. the way we deal with the COVID virus isn't, well, the, the more compelling your story, uh, you know, the more emotional your story or, or excuse for doing what you did, uh, the, the, more, the more okay it is. This isn't a competition to see who can come up with the most compelling excuse for, for breaking the rules. Because the virus doesn't respect that. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't respect, you know, that you haven't seen your family for a long time. Um, that's a, it's a horrible thing. I, I mean, I, you know, it's been tough on our family. It's been tough on tons of families. And, but this isn't a, a situation where, okay, you know, that's a, a very compelling and, and sad story. And I empathize with it. You yeah. know, there's going to be others out there. It's, it's not a case of judging whose story is the saddest and okay well then it's okay for you you know you're yeah you've got to have the rules consistently applied what about the we have another councillor in the victoria area has emerged now acknowledging a a covid vacation here machosen councillor kiara kakawala who acknowledged that she traveled to cabo san lucas on a, a trip that she says they didn't hide um she's quite open and saying yes we did we did this trip she's sorry people are upset but she's saying i didn't break any rules that you're allowed to travel to mexico she's saying she got back to canada doing a 14-day isolation as required for international travelers so yeah she went to mexico but so what she's allowed to go to mexico well i think anyone who's been listening to the the messaging from not only public health officials, but every level of government knows that uh, people are being told not to engage in that type of travel. Um, yeah, but it's not illegal, though, right? Sure. Okay, she's right. not going to go to jail, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, that's not the point, is it? You know, when you're an elected official, um, you know, you are, for better or worse, uh, stepping up to be a leader. And leaders have to set an example, uh, and, you know, when you get into this game of, well, I don't have to follow the rules, but you do, uh, you know, again, you, what you do is you just, uh, you gnaw at the bonds of trust. And trust is, you know, the most mm-hmm. fundamental part of the relationship between an elected official and their bosses. And their bosses are the voters, the people. And 
when you do things like that, you start to gnaw at those at those bonds of trust, and and, and I think you have forfeited your your moral authority uh, right. to be able to lead. What about what about at the municipal level? I mean, the COVID nineteen pandemic and the management of it, largely federal and provincial jurisdiction. And this is one of the other excuses that's been offered by the Machosen uh, councillor near Victoria, saying, "Like, look, you know, municipal." Uh, politicians, we don't really have a lot of authority around the management of this virus. This is like provincial responsibility. This is federal. So it's not like I'm telling you I'm I'm responsible for one thing and doing another. It's not my responsibility. It's federal and provincial responsibility. Your thoughts? Oh, I just think that's a cop-out. Like, I mean, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel when that's what you come up with. I mean, look, local government has been involved in the response to covid uh, local government, you know, I, I don't think there is a mayor or city councillor out there who hasn't been saying, you know, follow the follow the rules, right. follow the public health directives. You have some local governments that declared states of emergency over yeah. this, yeah. And, and and so then you turn around and say, well, no, you know, actually, I, I'm not that important, isn't it? <laughs> I have to say, it's so funny when so, sometimes uh, municipal politicians like to inflate their self of their their sense of importance when uh, when they want something, but when they're caught, it's like, oh, I'm I'm kind of inconsequential to this whole thing. Don't right. worry about me. I'm just a, I'm a small uh, small potatoes. Do you think there'll be more? I mean, are you hearing any other rumors? Yeah, I I I, I do. Th- I mean, look, the law of averages tells you that there's going to be yeah. more. There's a you know there's hundreds, thousands of uh, locally elected. Uh, officials. And, you know, as I said to you at the beginning, uh, unfortunately, I'm not surprised by this because I've seen this attitude and it is far too prevalent amongst the elected officials that, you know, um, I'm better. Uh, The rules I set are for other people, not for me. Uh, And so, you know, the fact that that attitude is there tells me that there there will be others. and, And I know that there's people calling around right now trying to track that down. And that's the, maybe the last thing I'll leave you with, Mike, is yep. isn't it amazing, the timing here? You know, all of a sudden, all these people are coming, well, I did this, or, you know, oh, I, I, I did take a trip, and I'm sorry. And the timing of this is now that the media is on the hunt. Well, you're sorry you know, when you it, get caught. I mean, it's, it's it, well, sort of the classic sorry, that, sorry that after the, you get caught. Isn't that ultimately the thing yeah. that's happening here yeah. is, you know, they're sorry because an Ontario cabinet minister got caught and started this snowball yeah. and started the hunt. And, and, you know, now people are probably, uh, you know, okay. <laughs> have a little bit nervous that uh, their, their vacation is going to come to light. And, and, okay. and so that's why they're sorry. All right, welcome back to the show. More politicians caught taking COVID vacations. You got two Victoria area municipal councillors are the latest to admit that they went on holiday outside of Canada over the Christmas break. Both have apologized and neither, though, are resigning from their positions. My guest is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Taking your phone calls now. Let's go to Mike in White Rock. Hi, Mike. Hey, guys. Um, so for me, bottom line is they made the choice to go. Everybody wants to be part of a lynch mob. Everybody needs to back down. These people will be judged in the court of public opinion. They're elected officials. And show your support or disdain come the election. But they haven't done anything illegal. Was it morally wrong? Well, look at our our prime minister. 
So there you go. You can do whatever you need to do as long as you're not breaking the law. And if you're an elected official, you will be judged in the court of public opinion come election time. Okay. okay. Move the on vo- to the next issue. Thanks for the call. The voters will decide, Mayor Brad West, in the next election. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. They will and they should. You know, I, I hope people remember this uh, and make their, their judgment. Oh, you think they should resign now, though, right? Uh, if it were me, yes. Uh, because I, I think that to me, this is just so egregious in terms of uh, being absolutely hypocritical. And I, I don't accept this idea that, oh, I, I've had a, you know, what are the phrases they come up with? A lapse in judgment or yeah. uh, an error, you know. To me, this is, this is a fundamental uh, breaking of the, the trust that you require as an elected yeah. official to lead. Okay. And, you know, how can you possibly turn around and tell your residents, you need to do this, or you need to do that, or I'm asking you to do this, uh, because we've got a long way to go with COVID, and that people are going to be asked to make more sacrifices. How do you go and do that and ask that of people, you know, when you yourself have not followed the rules? Let's go to Jeanette on the open line in Vancouver. Hi. Hi. I totally agree with your guest there. Um, I don't agree with the previous caller at all. I've got lots of friends who regularly travel, and none of us are traveling now. We're yeah. all listening you know, to the advisories, and it's very upsetting and disturbing, to say the least, that, that all these politicians at all levels of our government you know, yeah. are showing such a complete lack of judgment. They should be booted out. If they, you know, they should, I agree with your, the mayor, they should resign. It's disgusting. The hypocrisy stinks, mm. and it's shameful. Okay, Jeanette, and, thank you. And, and what's it going to do to, how are they going to tell people to keep following the guidelines? Yeah. We've already got groups of, you know, saying that the uh, virus is a, a hoax and the anti-maskers, yeah. this isn't going to help things. Thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, it does cut across uh, all levels of government. So we've had federal, provincial, municipal governments involved and cuts across all parties, too. So you've seen liberal, NDP, conservative all across Canada. So it seems like, I guess, the... Uh, the stupidity on this or the hypocrisy doesn't know any party bounds on it for sure. Let's squeeze in another call. Sean in North Van. Hi, Sean. Hey, guys. Uh, I don't have much time, but Justin Trudeau set the gold standard for the country. Blackface, Ethics Commission, shutting down SNC-Lavalin, and the We Charity. That's the standard today, the gold standard, and the electorate doesn't seem to care. Sean, thanks for the call. Well, I guess the electric will have the final say. Let's got just a minute left. Let's squeeze in Jeremy in Langley. Hi. Oh, good point. I agree with the last caller. And um, I think the politicians, if they want to travel or if anybody's traveling, these are advisories. It's like going hiking in the avalanche country when there's avalanches. It, it, it <laughs> takes some risk. And they're going to base the heat when the people vote. That's kind of what I want to say. Jeremy, thank you for the call. Mayor Brad West, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about municipal golf courses in the city of Vancouver now. There are three of them in the city. You got McCleary Golf Course, Langara, also Fraser View Golf Course, all owned and operated by the city. They are public courses operated and managed through the Vancouver Park Board. Should this very valuable land remain reserved for public golf forever? 
Or should the city take a look at repurposing some of this land? Right now, the Park Board is doing a review of golfing in the city of Vancouver. What will happen to these municipal golf courses? Let's talk about this now uh, with my guest, Professor Patrick Condon from the University of British Columbia. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Condon, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, Professor, you wrote a very interesting article a while back about golf courses in the city, and you made the proposal that maybe these golf courses, the, the land is so valuable in the city of Vancouver, maybe there's a better use for them other than golf, right? Your thoughts? Yeah, that was the thought. Uh, it was offered as one, you know an option, and the real problem in the city of Vancouver is the cost of land. It's yeah. not the building that costs a lot. It's the land that's under it. And your business report just stated that there was a nearly a 10% increase in the price of housing, which is basically the cost of land in the, in the Vancouver region this past year in the midst of a pandemic. This is totally nuts. But it's just emblematic of what's happening globally with land prices going through the roof, and there doesn't seem to be any stop to it. So getting affordable housing... Uh, it's very, very difficult under these circumstances. Thus, you look around, well, where's the land? Yeah. And the city has three golf courses. Of the seven inside the city limits, three of them are owned by, by the city of Vancouver. Right. If you do the breakouts, which we did, the value of that land is somewhere around $12 billion and rising. Whoa. Yeah, Whoa. unbelievable. And. Yeah. And it's the only large acreage that we have. And our suggestion was to take only half of that acreage and turn it into three kinds of housing, market housing, co-op housing, and social housing. And you would use the market housing to cross-subsidize the, uh, the, the social housing. The co-op housing pays for itself. And if you did that, you could get tens of thousands of affordable units that are unaffordable otherwise, and it wouldn't cost the taxpayer anything. In addition to that, 50% of the land would be turned over into a public park available for use by anybody. So that Okay, so if you did... Okay, interesting. So if you did half of the golf courses for, for public housing and the other half is, is still available for, for public use as park, like would, would you... Could you still golf on the other half, or would you, or would you turn that into like green space or a park? People would walk through it. My own personal preference would be green space, but you know, based on what the citizens decided, it could be turned into a nine-hole golf course instead of an eighteen-hole golf course. That's another option. So, the critical thing here is to look for ways to look for available land that the that the citizens already own to deal with this this terrific problem. Okay, what about the public value, though, of recreation, getting people outside, getting people active, getting them golfing? Like, these, these golf courses are pretty popular, uh, cost-effective for a lot of people who want to get out. What about that? I mean, that's a public value, too, right? Yeah, well, that is a value, and, of course, it's a contentious idea. Uh, but uh, golf courses across Canada and across North America many times are already being given over to housing uses because the demand for golf generally has gone down. There'll be arguments with my mm. friends in the city of Vancouver over this over this point, but the demand for golf is going down. There's not that many people who can afford to take a whole day out of their week and spend it on the golf course. Uh, otherwise, you know, there's a need for other kinds of recreation that are not satisfied in these in these locations. These 
these these golf courses are all on the south side of the city where there's a deficit of public park space. So one might want to recall that uh, uh, the uh, the Arboretum on uh, on uh, uh, Oak Street was once yeah. the, was once a golf course. We've already had a situation where we've turned over golf courses to other public purposes. Is there any... Case, are, are there any other precedents for, for doing this? Like, I'm wondering if there are any other cities in, in North America, for example, that have done something like this, taken a local public municipal golf course and turned it into housing. Is there any precedent for it? Yeah, Toronto has a much more serious uh, uh, initiative that is further along in terms of getting authorization to turn some of their own municipal courses into this kind of uh, hybrid situation with housing and recreation. Okay, it's an interesting idea. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure. All right, that is Professor Patrick Condon. He's in the Urban Design Program at the University of British Columbia. Let's check in now with uh, John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Commissioner, thank you for coming on. Thank you, and uh, good morning, Mike. What do you think about what you just heard there? Well, uh, first let me start about what is the mandate of the Vancouver Park Board, and it's to provide... uh, recreation and parks and and to the public and if you look at say for instance why do we have community centers that's so you don't have to join the arbutus club that's so the public can be involved why do we have public golf so you don't have to join a a private course now one of the interesting things is uh, canada's golf participation rate is 20 percent its golf rate is number one in all countries of the world and nearly double that of the united states and based on participation, golf is the number one recreational activity in Canada, played by more Canadians than hockey or soccer. That's an interesting fact. So well, that's kind of su- that's kind of surprising, actually, because if, if yeah. you were to, if you were to ask me, like, how many people do I know who play golf? I, w- I wouldn't guess it would be twenty percent of the people I know. Yeah, that's from our most recent information yeah. uh, of a year ago, a report that we got uh, back. Yeah. What's also very interesting to know is that. Over 50% of the, of the golf property is not golf surfaces, so it's composed of natural forests, water bodies, ponds, marshes, creeks, and streams, walking trails, and naturalized areas. Yeah. So the, these are really um, natural, almost biospheres that we have in our city, and then they really help us uh, with the environment and the air quality and, uh, and all kinds of things. And if you take Professor Condon's argument the step further uh, is Stanley Park next? Is mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth Park next? You know, we have 240 parks in Vancouver. And I remember the words of one of our uh, previous uh, general managers, Stuart LaFoe, and he had a famous comment. He would say, I've never been to a city with too many parks. I think Vancouverites are really pleased with their parks and their public golf courses and their public marinas and various things that we provide. Okay. And okay. I think it's essential. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about Vancouver's three municipal golf courses, what should be done with them in the future? Should they be turned into public housing? 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. My guest is Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper. Let's go to your phone calls. Mark and Poco. Hi, Mark. Hi. My opinion on this and my frustration level is so high that to I'm not against taking parkland, but it's just putting a Band-Aid on the problem until yeah. our politicians realize that 
five years from now, ten years from now, that parkland, if we use it for housing, we're going to still have a housing problem. We just said it. Land on the earth is a global problem. There's not too many Mexicans living on living in Cancun, not too many Hawaiians living on Waikiki Beach. And I'm sure 20 years from now, there won't be anybody who was born here living in Vancouver. It's going to be a place well, for the rich sure around the world. This is what we have to stop. Okay, Mark, thank you, thank you for the call. All right, Commissioner, what do you think about, like, you know, the housing crisis is obviously a big priority for, for the city, but where does the sort of management of the park system come in there? I mean, like, if you did turn these golf courses into housing, would it, would it cure the problem? No, I don't think it would. And I mean, yeah. if you look, for instance, the old city yard between Camby Bridge and the Olympic Village uh, sits vacant. That's city land that the city could develop. The land uh, by the viaducts, we've been talking about this for years, uh, still undeveloped. We have a situation where this was a vision idea from Gregor Robertson a few years ago, uh, thinking that golf courses, uh, they should go after them. And, and it was, it was uh, you know, rejected at that time. Also, I'd like to point out that these are designated permanent parks. And under the Vancouver Charter, it takes a two-thirds majority of both city council and park board to remove uh-huh. a park from the city's inventory. So this is a uh, tall uh, hill to climb. And I think if people just take it into context, think about Stanley Park. Would we ever think about repurposing Stanley Park with housing? No. So why right, would we right. think about our public parks in Vancouver? I just think it's a non-starter. Let's go to Chris in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. Great discussion. I just want to quickly start off by saying I don't necessarily think we have a homelessness crisis. We have a mental health and addiction crisis, but I do digress back to the golf. Um, You know, I understand why some of the ideological woke uh, left sort of want to go after golf courses. They think it's a a sport of privilege or a sport for, you know, country club sport. But look, not everybody in the city plays golf. I get it. But during this pandemic, I know that more people picked up a golf club than maybe had in years past because golf courses were a place where people could distance and play a sport safely during a pandemic. And if we take that away from people, that's a terrible thing. Second of all, let's get over the fact that this is a sport of privilege. It's not. It's a sport for many different types of races from people all over the world. It's an international sport. And if you tell me that young Brooke Henderson couldn't play golf in a public course in Vancouver, then we wouldn't have a champion female golfer. Okay, great call, Chris. Thank you for that. And I I think you raise a great point about golfing during the pandemic as well. I, I think that's really helped out a lot of people's mental health, to be honest with you, to be able to get outside and recreate uh, one of the Mike, few opportunities I, left. Yeah, go ahead, Commissioner. I'd just yeah. like to say, uh, our golf courses have the highest seniors discount available in the Lower Mainland, which is 30%, and we have a 50% discount for youth. So our prices range from as low as 850 to $67 wow. for four and a half hours of play. We have a very diverse group that play golf, and, and um, you know they really enjoy the sport, and people have been able to get outside during this pandemic properly socially distanced and get some exercise and you know there are statistics that people who play golf uh actually live longer and uh Mm. maybe i should take it up because uh, (laughs) i could use a few more years (laughs) okay let's go to brian on the line in cloverdale hi brian hey hi mike hi um yeah my comment is i don't want it turned into housing Mm. i would prefer to keep it as a park but if there's three golf courses already it's time to let the motorsport community have its day and turn one of them into a uh, a racetrack since the oh, oh, no got rid of our way. racetrack in 1990. Oh, <laughs> it sure my would be nice God. to have something back. There are you go. You, are you kidding me, Brian? No, Come on, I, man. 
a race <laughs> a race track. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that, Brian. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it, Jeremy in Abbotsford. Hi, Jeremy. I don't I don't golf, and uh, I'm a hundred percent against this idea. And the reason is is because I'm in those downtown SROs and modular housings pretty much almost every week. Every time I work. And wherever they build those, there's crimes and fires and thefts and vandalism, ICBC rates. The only housing these governments should be doing is like Cassiar and Six, like the big three-story townhouses for a parent with kids. Not this SRO model. Those people need like a hospital, Riverview addictions and counseling and therapy. It's uh, destroying the city, what they're doing with that kind of housing. And they aren't building the family housing. Thank you for the call. Squeeze in some more calls here. we got lots of them. Bob in Vancouver. Hi, Bob. Oh, sorry. Let's go to uh, Curtis and Coquitlam instead. Hi, Curtis. Hey, how are you? Good. So, yeah, the golf the golf industry is just taking off like crazy right now with the pandemic. Lots of new golfers. You can't even get a tee time at a golf course now. The public golf courses they they're booked up. I think a week in advance. Everybody's raising their rates. You can't even get a membership at like a semi private golf course right now. They've got waiting uh-huh. lists. I mean, golf is 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 a huge demand. I agree. That maybe, unfortunately, I, I'm a golfer and an avid golfer. Langara, if you're going to give up a golf course, unfortunately, like Langara would be one because it's right on the County Corridor and stuff like that. But the other two, McCleary and uh, Fraserview, would never be touched. They make lots of money for the coffers for the city. And, uh, yeah, no, golf is, golf is a growing industry, and the okay. prices are rising. Thanks for I mean, the call. Thanks for the call. Commissioner Cooper, is that correct? Does the city make money off of these courses? Yeah, if it wasn't for golf this year, we would be at a real problem. It's one of the few things that the Park Board has that's actually been uh, sustaining its revenue through this pandemic. Uh, we've wow. had uh, probably $20 million in, in losses of revenue in the last year, and uh, golf is uh, really the shining shining light. And the other thing is uh, people should know that the capital projects on golf, uh, people pay for that in their green fees, so it does not come out of the normal capital cycle. So the golfers are paying for these improvements over the years, and, and that's a model that's been around in Vancouver for a number of decades and yeah. allows us to do these. That's why I was very concerned with the Green uh, Cope Alliance that uh, at the budget time put a stop on some of this work while we do this survey because uh, these courses are so well used and need to be maintained. And both NPA Commissioner uh, Tricia Barker and I are were against that and really want to make sure that we keep our courses in good shape and keep people active in the city of Vancouver. We've got a minute left. Let's uh, talk to Paul in White Rock. Hi, Paul. Oh, hi, Mike. How are you doing? Good. We just got a minute. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, this thing about the... I echo the guy a few minutes ago said that the golf golfing is really popular. It is unbelievable right now. And that professor out of UBC, he's still out of touch. How could he say that golfing is going downhill? It is going uphill. Everyone likes to golf. But anyway, I, I, it would be a disaster to see Fraserview, Langara, McCleary taken out because those are very old established golf courses in vancouver it would be it'd be a real sad day if they were taken out yeah anyway, hope, kind of, hope we keep her going thanks a lot for the call they're historic courses for sure uh, commissioner we just got 30 seconds if you want to wrap up yeah i just i just think that people should uh, voice their opinion i mean uh, you know okay. that's how we roll in vancouver people want to be heard I just think it's uh, really important that these things that have been set aside and there's been some foresight over many years uh, to have this great public uh, system of parks and recreation and golf and marinas and all of those things, uh, we need to preserve those. And uh, I'm very proud to be a Park Board Commissioner. Thanks for coming on. 
Thank you very much. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that police shooting in the downtown east side yesterday. Very disturbing uh, story here in the video that has come out. It is also uh, very, very disturbing. 37-year-old man has died yesterday after he was shot by Vancouver police. It happened just before 5 a.m. yesterday morning in the downtown east side. Police responding to calls of a naked man with a sword. And, yeah, it, it ended uh, tragically. Have a listen to this report here from Andrea McPherson, Global News reporter. Vancouver police confirm a 37-year-old man's been shot and killed by officers here at Princess Avenue and East Hastings around 5 a.m. this morning. This is just in front of the Salvation Army's Grace Mansion. Officers were first called out to reports of a man acting erratically, uh, seen throwing objects from a second-story window. That's when cell phone video began to roll. And next, a naked man was spotted in the street carrying a large weapon believed to be a sword. Now, officers claim he was chasing people. He was spotted at one point running into a glass door, but it was when he began coming back into traffic towards an officer with that weapon. Well, that's when witnesses say shots rang out. I heard three shots myself. Four, 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 but I heard like a tap. Oh, yeah, yeah. see? Quite intense, like... But, like, the gentleman, like I said, he was obviously out of his mind. He was probably high or something. But, yeah, from that's all I know of it so far, like, because I've seen it from my window. The Independent Investigations Office has been called in to investigate. Yellow tape still surrounds the neighborhood, and Vancouver police expect to be on scene for much of the day. Andrea McPherson, Global News. Okay, if you saw that video last night on the Global News Hour, I encourage you to check it out online. It is disturbing video to watch, though, as this man is uh, shot by police. Um, you know what? This is one of these stories where I've already gotten a lot of emails overnight from people saying this is why you need some sort of alternative response system for a mental health call. If you have someone in what, in what appears to be a psychotic episode, do you respond with a mental health call or do you respond with a police call let's talk about this now with my guest harsha walia executive director of the bc civil liberties association i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show hi harsha hi good morning thank you for having me thank you very much for coming on very disturbing and troubling story what did you think when you saw that story and you saw that video yeah i agree i mean it's incredibly disturbing it's tragic uh, you know, we're just a few days into 2021, and we've already seen this and many other incidents of police violence, and in this case of, of police murder. And it's so incredibly disturbing because really there are just so many other options available or should be available to people, and killing somebody should absolutely not be on the table. Um, this person okay, was in distress. Well, hang on a sec. Police murder. Let me just. Let me just ask you about that, because mm-hmm. I, I know you saw the video like a lot of other people did. I mean, the guy, mm-hmm. the guy clearly had a weapon. It looked like a it looks like a sword. I mean, it's tough to mm-hmm. tell in the cell phone video, but it certainly looks like a, a massive sword. Huge. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, advancing toward a police officer. Is that not justified use of a sidearm? I think the thing that we really have to keep in mind is, you know, in this instance, he was the person who was killed. No officer was injured. And police are supposed to be trained in de-escalation tactics, and in the very least, they're supposed to be trained in non-lethal force. And nothing indicates that any other form of non-lethal force was used 
Um, and that's what's concerning, right? So, well, how do we know, how do we know that though? I mean, we've seen like a, a very short snippet of a cell phone video. We still yeah, know the whole story. That, yeah, but we do know that he's dead. We do know well, he, that he's dead, and he is dead. The man yeah. is dead, and he didn't die from natural causes, right? If this was a civilian case, this would be called uh, a murder. Whether he's justified well, or not, he is he is dead, and he has been killed. Well, okay, but here's the thing. Like, if you have a person who is advancing toward a police officer with a large mm-hmm. sword and who the police say had been threatening other people before the, before the, the shooting happened, uh, at some point, the police have got to take some kind of action, right? Like, you've got to, you've got to get the situation under control. So, I'm, like, I'm just wondering, like, are you saying, what, they should have used taser or, or some other kind of non-lethal option? Well, I think that's exactly it, right? There are other non-lethal options. That's what they're trained to do. Police officers are trained in non-lethal force, and that should have been used. And I think this is disturbing for many people. In particular, what's disturbing is that we continue to see police involvement in what, as you said earlier, was someone who was in mental health distress. We know that the downtown east side is a neighborhood with you know, folks who are in mental health distress. We're in the middle of a pandemic People are, li- are still living in poverty or homeless on the streets. We're in the midst of an opioid crisis as well. You know, this is, as has been for a long time, a neighborhood that experiences high levels of stress, of trauma, anxiety, um, and mental health crisis and more. Yeah. And so what we need is other kinds of responses, right? So when people are in this kind of distress and desperation, we need other kinds of health-based responses, de-escalation-based responses, that ensure that everyone is kept safe in these kinds of situations. But, but when you have a situation where someone has a huge sword and mm-hmm. is threatening people and clearly walking toward a police officer with brandishing a massive weapon, um, how would a mental health response team or a social worker uh, handle that situation when you're being, con- you're being confronted or threatened with a deadly weapon? Well, I think one, I mean, I have to say, I've actually worked in the downtown east side for almost two decades, including in a frontline crisis center, including with people who brandished weapons on me. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to suggest that it always works out perfectly, but that is, the, that is the point of training in de-escalation, which can involve physical intervention as a point of last resort. But I think we can all agree that at no point is someone who is in a health crisis who has primarily injured himself, right? He, uh, from what I understand from news reports, he had injured himself, he rammed into a door, Um, some news reports suggest that he had harmed himself. Uh, It's not clear how. Perhaps he'd used the sword against himself. This is someone that is acting out largely on themselves. So I understand, intimately understand the fear when someone approaches. I've been approached with a weapon, as I've said, um, and that is the skill of someone who is trained in de-escalation. And again, at no point is it necessary to shoot to kill. Right. So whether that is again, I'm not an officer. Well, I mean, is it ever is it ever ne- is it ever necessary in I your mind to so. shoot to shoot to kill? Well, what if you're being what if your life is being threatened? I don't think that's the case when there is a group of officers who are all armed facing down one person. Um, and you know, this is not a kind of you know Hollywood saga where someone's a, a shooter. That's not the reality for most police involved shootings. Most police-involved shootings are people who are in mental health crisis, who are largely looking to harm themselves, or that is what has happened. Um, And again, you know, there's a group of officers who are facing down one person, shoot to kill. It's really hard to believe that that's ever an option. You know, I've never actually heard of a situation 
even when we hear about people brandishing weapons, it's almost rarely, for example, someone who has a gun, right? They have uh, small bolts, cutters, swords, knives, what have you. And again, none of those situations, as scary as they sound, mean that someone should be should be dead, right? right. This is someone uh, who needs interest- help and support. The interesting thing is when you speak to police officers, as I, as I know you have, and, w- and we've interviewed the, the P- Ch- Vancouver police chief on the show here, for example, and they will say mm-hmm. that we don't disagree that there needs to be more social services. We would yeah. like help. We are responding to the, a lot of these mental health calls and we want help. So they're not opposed to more investment into social services, more mental health response teams. That's great. But they also point out that the reality of a lot of these mental health calls is that a large majority of them uh, include uh, threats of violence and, and threats to the public. And I guess, you know, some police officers might look at this situation yesterday, as tragic as it was, as saying this is a classic example of what we're, what we're talking about. That here we have a case of a guy who's obvious, it seems clearly that he's going through a mental health or a psychotic episode, mm-hmm. um, yet he's brandishing a massive sword. So, mm-hmm. you know, does that not, like, I just don't see how, you know, a social worker with a clipboard is going to go down there and, and be able to handle a situation like that. It just seems to me like the police have got to be there. Like, if someone's chasing people around with a sword, like, the cops have got to respond. But I think the question that that really begs, as you said, there's, you know, a, there's a range of things, right? One is the upstream situation. Why are we, as a society, in a na- and allowed a neighborhood um, to get to the point where people are so desperate, right? That there is a mental health crisis in this city. We have to address that. It's compounded by poverty. It's compounded by the opioid crisis. That matters. Uh, it also matters that we can, we just cannot normalize the fact that people are being killed for being in crisis. So, yes, maybe you know at that point, someone with a clipboard may not be able to do anything. But it also is possible to get a sword out of someone's hands without killing them. Right? Well, how would, well, how would you recommend they do that? Like, you know, how do you again? Think they are police- they are trained. They are trained yeah. in non lethal force, and if yeah. not, they must be trained in non lethal force. That is what we want, and I think should expect is that if people are being called to a mental health crisis, and someone is threatening is threatening violence, but is primarily in distress, right? They are not yeah. out to get some particular person. That at the end of the day, that person needs wellness they need to be supported and everybody right. should be able to be alive in that situation well the there's there's the an indi- there's an independent investigation going on into this incident and mm-hmm. we'll we'll see i mean i don't i don't think any of us should be rushing to judgment on it we'll we'll let the the process unfold here with an investigation going on but i, I know if the, the the vancouver police chief was here right now he he would say well there's a continuum of force that officers are taught to employ and non-lethal application of force would be the first option and then you go up from there if it doesn't work and in this situation it would appear in the video the police officer is is telling uh is telling the person put down the sword put down the sword and, and he continues to someone advance a, toward the police officer absolutely, with the but sword. someone in a mental health crisis we don't know what's happening for him either right as you said no. we don't know what he's we don't know what the person was hearing we don't know what that person was able to comprehend and by me saying, you know, non-lethal force doesn't only include verbal, right? There are many other things that police officers can do that don't require that someone will have to die, right? You right. can disarm someone, you can disable them. Um, they're, they're familiar with those tactics. But I think we're also in a, in a broader context where there is increased concerns 
about the lack of accountability when it comes to police, right? In this instance, absolutely. Well, there's an, there there's an independent investigation. There's an independent investigation underway. Is, is that not accountability? That's one form of accountability, but we also know, for example, with the IAO, that over half of the uh, half of the investigators involved in the IAO are, for, are former police officers. It's not a fully civilian uh, police oversight mm. body, right? And that's true about all of our accountability mechanisms across the country. And we're also in a time where we know that there's a reckoning about the power of police. This is not only about one incident. This is the power about police across, you know, police forces yeah. across this country. And a number of situations that have come up about, you know, just for example, the, the situations around wellness checks. Most Canadians didn't yeah. even know that police were involved in wellness checks until this past year. Okay, right? let me play so the fact the, that me... we're having this conversation, should yeah. police be involved in wellness, in wellness checks, is incredibly important. Let me play this here for you, Harsha. This, of course, comes at a time when a lot of people are advocating for the defunding of the police and, and transition money into social services, away from the police and into social services. Instead, we just saw the Vancouver Police Department have its budget frozen for the next year. Let me play this for you. This is um, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer on an earlier appearance on the show talking about the police budget. Here's what he said. I'd just like to point out that I think some people are you know, buying into this false argument that you know, the upstream drivers are underfunded because police services are overfunded. We would agree that those upstream services are underfunded and they need more money, but not at the expense of public safety and the police. So we agree that mental health, homelessness, addiction, they need more support, full stop, but not at the expense of public safety. Harsha, your thoughts? Well, I think the, the two really important things to keep in mind here is that even if you look at the VPD's own report. Uh, over about a third of the kinds of policing that they do is what's called problem-oriented policing, which has nothing to do with actual criminal code offenses, but it has to do with things like people sleeping in public space, people using substances in open space. These are all okay. actually about criminalizing social issues. So, you know, when Chief Adam Palmer says we can't do it at the expense of public safety, I'd say the opposite, that public safety has actually been, a narrative has been spun where public safety is explicitly okay. about criminalizing poverty. And so it is absolutely the case that if we have upstream solutions like housing, like support services, that there will be uh, less public, you know, less fewer people. Um, the, the, the time, the time, is, the, the time has flown by and we're, we're out of time, sadly, but I want to thank you for yours. Thank you thank for coming you. on today. Thanks a lot. That is Harsha Wall. Thank you. Harsha Walia, Executive Director of BC Civil Liberties. All right. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Karen Fry. She made history this week, becoming the first woman fire chief in the city of Vancouver. She's the former fire chief in Nanaimo, former deputy chief in Surrey. As of this week, she is the first woman to be the chief of the Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. I'm very pleased to welcome her, Chief Fry. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm very excited. Well, congratulations on making history to, uh, this week. That's that's wonderful. What what does that mean mean to you personally to be the, the first woman to hold this post in in the city of Vancouver? Huh. Well, that's a good, that's an interesting position. You sometimes don't don't really uh, anticipate that that the gender that we are is going to be. Um, made a big deal of growing up or anything like that and <laughs> yeah. and to and to be recognized as uh as the first female chief i i like to think that i'm the most qualified chief uh for the position but but yeah. being a a role model and and being able to help uh enhance and and grow the fire service for for women is is just something i'm really proud of i think it's fantastic how many women are uh, are firefighters in the in the city of vancouver 
That's a good question. I need to find that out after day three on the job for me. I know that we we have um, less than probably 30, 30 female firefighters uh, within the city of Vancouver with uh, a staff of over 800. So the numbers wow. are still low. Yeah, they're very low. Like I was reading one report that across Canada, it's around maybe 5% of firefighters are, are women in the country, similar numbers south of the border in the United States. Obviously, it's been a male-dominated profession for a long time. W- what is it like for, for women who want to want to be a fighter, a firefighter? Maybe you, could, maybe you could talk a little bit about your own career and what it's like to be a woman working in the firefighting business. Yeah, so... You're absolutely right. We 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 reach about four percent of the population in the fire service yeah. are uh, are are females, and a lot of those uh, are in the smaller communities in the volunteer and on calls where women have traditionally and most recently taken on larger roles. Um, so a lot of the times we're seeing that, and in forestry firefighting as well. Uh, so for for individuals that are interested in being a, a female firefighter, you know, when I was younger, it was more all about the strength, and yeah. um, and and we're told. And similarly, years and years ago, you had to be a certain height to be in the police service, and and there were a lot of criteria in, in the fire service back in the 70s and early 80s, and and times are changing because it's not just about uh, being a, a big, bronze, strong individual. There's a lot of different skills required, and and there's a lot of different ways into the fire service. And I am not an operational firefighter and never have been, uh, but I can manage and lead people. And I understand the fire service and understand what they do and how they do it, and I'm there to support them. So, um, you know, I think... For for a lot of women uh, and young young women out there, if you're into team sports and, and you're athletic and you've got some skills and you've got a good head on your shoulders and, and you're smart and you're quick, uh, those are some of the qualities uh, that really will do do an individual well, including compassion and want to be out in the community. Right. In, in, in your own career in the fire service, have you ever experienced any kind of sexual harassment or barriers? barriers put in your way? Uh, gosh, I'm going to say there's probably harassment at all levels and for a lot of different individuals. And, and I'm sure I've had, there definitely have been situations where, where I've taken pause and, and, mm-hmm. and called people out for, for different mm-hmm. things. It's definitely changed. Uh, it has changed a lot in the over 20 years that I've been in the fire service. Uh, I am treated with nothing but respect nowadays. Uh, but I do know that there have been individuals along the way that, that have really suffered uh, at the hands of other individuals, and not just females. So it's not just women, too, right? Unfortunately, it, it's yeah. a lot of other individuals as well in any organization or, or large group. Uh, but, you mm. know, I, I stand up to people pretty easily, and mm-hmm. and um, the older I get and the wiser I get, the, the less that I would uh, account for anything or put up with anything like that. I love it. I love hearing that. I, and, I, and I think it's fantastic that you're the chief, and I hope you serve as, as a role model and an inspiration for other women who, who want to uh, choose a career career in firefighting. Are, are there still barriers, though? I mean, you, you mentioned how things have changed uh, in, in the old days, you talked about, you know, there were height requirements and stuff like that. I remember friends of mine saying like, oh, I'd like to be a firefighter. I'd like to be a police officer, but I'm not tall enough. You had to reach mm-hmm. a certain height. Like, is that all gone away now? There Are there any sort of physical requirements that's still in place for the job? 
yeah, there, there's there's definite physical requirements that you're required to do. So there yeah. are most fire departments will have a minimum um, physical assessment test that you have to be able to pass. So there'll be what they call a CPAT test, which is, I believe it's a physical um, physical agility test, and it's similar to what the police uh, undertake. And then there, a lot of times during a recruitment process, they want to make sure that you can pull a hose that is um, charged or full of water uh, at an incident and in a quick manner and be able to lift and carry and pull uh, so there, it is. There is a lot of physical requirements, and and you know, women nowadays are incredibly strong and agile, and and physical fitness is a, a part of a lot of uh, a lot of everybody's general lifestyle. Uh, so, so that's one yeah. of it. There's also psychometric assessments that a lot of fire departments to do to to ensure that that you have a, a mechanical aptitude, that you work with teamwork. Uh, that you have a, a resiliency to you that um, you know is going to help you along the way in dealing with some of the 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 tragic situations uh, that that we and firefighters encounter uh, yeah. daily. Just got a two couple of minutes left here. Chief Fries is such an important service and frontline service in our community with the Vancouver Fire Department. Been a difficult period here. We've gone through COVID nineteen. What are your sort of priorities and your outlook here for for twenty twenty one in terms of the Vancouver uh, Fire Department? Yeah, I think uh, some of my priorities really in, in the nearest future is is making sure that we have uh, resources available so we can continue to respond to the community and protect the community, yeah. to make sure that our staff are healthy uh, and physically fit and safe and so and trained well so they can do the job and protect our community in Vancouver. And so it's it's much like COVID. If we're not healthy, we can't go out and help others. And, and we need to, to focus on that. What was your budget? Well, was your budget this year frozen like the Vancouver Police Department budget was frozen? Uh, I have not gotten my, my budget numbers yet, uh, right. but I do believe that there were reductions all across the city. That's uh, definitely sure. Yeah, yeah and well, I, I know that we had a growth plan and, and a lot of that has been put on hold. Uh, for the for the next year. Just got one minute left. What would you say to any young women out there who are listening and thinking like, wow, maybe I could be a firefighter? What, what would be your message to them? Yeah, I think for for any young woman out there that that's considering something, it's, you know, if you're given an opportunity, take a try, uh, get active, work hard in school, uh, get out and volunteer in your community, and uh, don't don't look back or don't think you can't do it. Congratulations. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. All the best.